Coming up today on the ELB podcast, the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. What's happening with today's struggles over voter ID laws, registration rules, and other fights over the ballot? And how do those connect to the history of voting rights over the last 50 years since the signing of the Voting Rights Act? On episode one, we'll be joined by Ari Berman, author of the new book, Give Us the Ballot. Stay tuned for our first episode of the ELB podcast. Joining me as my first guest and guinea pig is Ari Berman. Uh, Ari is the contributing writer for The Nation magazine and an investigative journalism fellow at The Nation Institute. His new book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, was just published. His stories have also appeared in The New York Times, Rolling Stone, and The Guardian. And he's a frequent guest and commentator on MSNBC and NPR. His first book, Hurting Donkeys, The Fight to Rebuild the Democratic Party and Reshape American Politics, was published in 2010. Ari, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. I'm excited to be the first guest, and I am sure I speak for many future guests in saying that uh, I couldn't do this work that I'm doing um, without your website and without your work. And I've learned so much from it over the years, and so I'm excited to talk to you about voting rights. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Uh, Yours is the first book to tell the full story of the Voting Rights Act, from its inception to the present day. As I wrote recently at Slate, I think you've done a masterful job weaving the story together from the 1965 Act to the renewals in 1970, 1975, 1982, and finally 2006, then followed up by the Supreme Court's decision in the 2013 Shelby County case and the recent uh, set of litigation that we've seen, most notably in Texas and North Carolina. And so I just want to start uh, with uh, some basic questions about the process of the book and then move to some specific questions focused more on uh, what's happening currently and how the history ties in to the future. So let me just start with a very general question. What inspired you to write this book and and what surprised you most in what you found in looking at the 50-year trajectory of the Voting Rights Act? So most people who write histories, either historians or, or journalists who write about history, they start at, at, the, at the beginning and they move forward uh, and they try to connect the, the research that they're doing in the past with what's happening in the present. I did the opposite. I started in the present because I was reporting on voting rights, uh, first for Rolling Stone and then for The Nation since 2011. And after the Supreme Court decided to hear the challenge of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County versus Holder, I became very interested in the history of the VRA. And I started asking a lot of people, you included, um, what I should read to better understand about the Voting Rights Act. And I was surprised that there wasn't really a comprehensive popular account of what the act did. There are a lot of books about the history of, of what led to the Voting Rights Act, the initial few years of the VRA, but then it kind of dropped off. It seemed almost like history had ended uh, in, in, in 1965. And so uh, I realized that as someone who had covered uh, voting rights before and had already written one, one book, um, that I was 
probably well-placed uh, to tell this story, that I already knew a lot of the players, uh, and that this would be something that was really timely, because uh, first thing, I anticipated that the Supreme Court was going to gut the Voting Rights Act, uh, as I'm sure you did as well. Uh, so I, I knew this was going to be a topic that was going to remain an issue for uh, many years, and I also knew that we were going to be coming up uh, on the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. I didn't know there was going to be a movie Selma and all this other stuff that happened, but I knew the VRA at 50 was going to be an issue. Uh, and I thought that this story really needed to be told and that people would be interested in it, and it would also be uh, very timely. And, and luckily, uh, that worked out. To answer your question about what surprised me, I knew that there had always been efforts to challenge the VRA, but the intensity of the 50-year effort to challenge the, vote, the VRA and voting rights more broadly, I, I found surprising just how deep the resistance was, how organized uh, it was, how unyielding it was. That surprised me. And also just how long the progress took. I mean, you had this initial ju jump in registration, but I mean, it took decades for people like John Lewis to be elected to the Congress. It took five decades to get Barack Obama as president. So both the backlash to the VRA and then just how long the progress took. I mean, telling those two stories was a big chunk of the book. I want to ask you about uh, your experience in interviewing some of the people, including John Lewis, who uh, fought uh, for the initial struggles in the uh, 1960s and before some of them, uh, through today, and how they see themselves as um, uh, moving from a past where voting rights were uh, lit literally fought for in the streets to a different kind of struggle today. So how do you think they view the path that the VRA has taken over the last 50 years and, and where we are now? Uh, have we, have we uh, in their view, and then I'll turn to your view, in their view, do you think things have come as far as they expected, as far as they had hoped? Uh, one of the fun things about the book was getting to sit down with people like John Lewis for extended periods of time, you know, for an hour, two hours, and, and really get um, in-depth uh, on their history. And so I did a lot of these interviews with people who are well-known, like John Lewis, and people who were less well-known. Uh, and, and so that part of the, the research was really interesting, and I just learned a ton from doing it. I mean, I think that someone like John Lewis both recognizes the amazing progress that has been made. I mean, the fact that he is known as the conscious of the Congress and the fact that you know he was able to be with the president in Selma, the first black president in Selma, I think that was really powerful for him. I also feel think he feels like he's living life all over again with the Voting Rights Act uh, being challenged. I, I, I think you know he was very surprised that 50 years later, after he nearly died in Selma, that he would once again be fighting for voting rights, that the Voting Rights Act would once again be under threat. I think there's a feeling of profound sadness among people like John Lewis who feel like they had already won this battle and now they're having to fight it all over again. In many ways, they're on the losing side this time. Well, let me turn uh, to that and to, to your own view of the trajectory. And I, I want to read something that you said in a recent interview uh, about your book with Rolling Stone. Uh, you said, in many ways, the voting rights situation now closely resembles the situation before the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. The right to vote is threatened across the country, and it's very difficult now to challenge new voting restrictions. It's a lengthy process before the courts, often before a hostile court, in which many ways the situation before the Voting Rights Act was passed. Now, obviously, we've made a huge amount of progress since then, so I don't want to make it seem like 2015 is 1965, because it clearly isn't. But if you look at the many challenges we're facing today, those were things that the Voting Rights Act was supposed to eradicate. 
And so you have two different ideas here. One is that it's closely like the situation before, and the other is the huge progress. And it seems that there's uh, this kind of ambivalence or a bittersweet moment now. And I'm just wondering how you compare the two situations. It seems that things were much more dire in 1965, and yet today uh, there are still struggles over voting rights. So how do you see the, the relative uh, strength of voting rights in this, uh, across this 50-year period? Well, I think that it's possible for both to be true. I think it's possible to acknowledge the progress while also understanding that there are new fights and new struggles today and that there are unnerving parallels between 2015 and 1965. And so I think that contradiction uh, is what's so interesting right now that they're happening at the same time, that we have Barack Obama and then we also have the gutting of the Voting Rights Act concurrently. And so there's some real tension to the story here. And telling those two narratives, the narrative, as I call it, the narrative of revolution and the narrative of counter-revolution that we're seeing today is how I decided to thematically structure my book and uh, telling those two arcs. And, and, you know, what I think, when I say the voting rights uh, situation today resembles 1965, I don't mean that there are poll taxes and literacy tests that are disenfranchising millions of African-American voters. What I mean is that, take Texas, for example. Here you have a voter ID law that was struck down under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in 2012. Then the Supreme Court guts the Voting Rights Act. Then there's a whole new trial that takes months and costs millions of dollars. Then that law is knocked out. Then the Court of Appeals reverses that decision temporarily. Then the Supreme Court temporarily upholds that reversal. Then it goes back to the appeals court. Then the appeals court decides to largely uphold the lower court's decision, but narrow it and send it back down. So now we're talking about something that should have been invalidated in 2012 that is still on the books in 2015. This thing shows no time, no sense of ending, and thousands of people in Texas and elsewhere have been disenfranchised by these new voting restrictions. And so I absolutely think when the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, they didn't expect that there would be new voting restrictions in 2015 that would be prevented people from voting. And what the VRA was meant to do, as you know, more than anything, was to end this lengthy process of litigation where laws could only be struck down after years of fighting in courts. I mean, that's why the 57, the 60, and the 64 Civil Rights Act didn't work and why the VRA was needed. And so it's sad to me that 50 years later, we're at a point where now it, the, the restrictions aren't as severe as they were in 1965, but the effort to defeat them is really, once again, a Herculean task. Now, now, so much of the early part of your book and so much of the coverage of uh, the 50-year uh, anniversary of the Voting Rights Act focuses rightly on the struggle for African-American enfranchisement, especially in the South. But one of the parts of your book that I found uh, the most important uh, and, and really filling in a gap in at least popular knowledge about the Voting Rights Act is the struggle for Latino voting rights. Yeah. Which really dates back to the 1975 amendments of the act, which added protection for language minorities. Before then, there was some uh, protection, but really 1975 is what brings us, for example, the preclearance provisions that apply in Texas. So that story is told much less uh, uh, frequently. And it's a story that maybe um, is both starts with less overt racial discrimination in voting, but also ends with less success. And so I don't know if you had a chance to see the statistics that Bernard Fraga posted last week at the Monkey Cage blog, but it showed that while African-American turnout has reached or surpassed white turnout, Latino turnout still lags. So can you just talk a little bit about 
the Latino part of the story and, and what you saw there and what you see uh, in the future uh, on that end? Yeah, well, I, I totally agree with you. I'm glad you asked me about this. This is a critically important part of the story that's frequently overlooked. I mean, I think one of the things is people believe that the Voting Rights Act is a piece of legislation that exclusively benefited African Americans. And what I argue in my book is that it became the prime vehicle for expanding voting rights for all Americans. That if you look at the 1970 reauthorization of the VRA, it lowered the voting age to 18 in all elections. It abolished literacy tests nationwide. The 75 reauthorization, as, as you mentioned, expanded protections for not just Latinos, but other language minority groups, Asian Americans, uh, Native Americans. Uh, and so it, it had a, a really broad sweep. And I think that's what's given the VRA its power. And so I was determined to try to tell um, that part of the story. And, and the Latino effort was so interesting because the 1975 VRA uh, didn't just cover uh, Latinos uh, and, and make it so that there were bilingual ballots all across the country, because in many places where there were uh, you know, people who spoke another language. English-only ballots function as de facto literacy tests. But also the 75 VRA reauthorization covered Texas, which, as you know, in the years past, was the most flagrant violator of voting rights. I mean, the number of violations in Texas so far surpasses um, all the other states. And, and so I thought it was really important to tell that story. And I thought there was a really interesting organizing effort uh, around the 75 VRA where, you know, Latino activists in places like Texas came to the Congress, told their stories about discrimination. I, I tell a story of a guy by the name of Modesto Rodriguez, a farmer uh, in rural Texas, who testified about voting discrimination uh, before the Congress. And then when he returned to Texas, uh, was nearly killed, was beaten severely while trying to organize people who are going to testify in a lawsuit the Justice Department filed against this county in Texas for voting discrimination. So the stakes were very high uh, 10 years after the passage of the VRA for Latinos. The risks were still very high. In many ways, they and other minority groups were, were forgotten in the struggle. And it's a struggle that remains today. You, you mentioned that uh, there's still a severe underrepresentation for uh, Latinos and some of the other language minority groups. Uh, so this, this fight certainly has not ended. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons why, but we're also seeing that some of these new voting restrictions are, are, are singling out Latinos as much as they're singling out African-Americans. Yeah, I think that's especially true in a place like Texas, where Latinos yeah. are an increasingly important voting bloc. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Democratic efforts are um, organized very much in terms of trying to organize that community and get that community out to vote. I should also add that I have an excerpt in The Atlantic online that focuses on the 75 reauthorization of the VRA. They were also interested uh, in spotlighting this history because it, it's so frequently overlooked. And I should mention that uh, you also have an excerpt focused on the 2000 election, which uh, is a very uh, interesting reading and uh, will bring at least some of the uh, older uh, uh, listeners back to a, a very contentious time in, in the United States. All of those uh, links uh, will appear uh, in uh, the post on the Election Law blog, which will link to this podcast. And so you'll be able to find those. Again, I'm speaking with Ari Berman, who's the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Uh, I want to turn, Ari, to the question of motivation. Mm -hmm. and the race or party question that you and I have been yeah. discussing for some time. There seems little question, and I think we both agree, although not everyone would agree, that today's crop of, of current restrictive voting laws are being passed not to prevent fraud or to promote voter uh, confidence, but instead for electoral reasons. 
uh, where I think perhaps we part company, uh, perhaps a little bit, is what are those reasons? Is this about racial animus? Is it about attempts by Republicans to gain party advantage, or is it something in between, or both of those things? And, and is the South still very different from the rest of the country? Well, so I think it is something in between. Uh, I think you tend to lead more towards um, the it's, it's mostly driven by partisanship, and, and I agree with that, but I also think that race is an issue. I think it's certainly driven by partisanship. I think there's many Republican officials who are passing these new voting restrictions that if African Americans or Latinos voted for their party in large numbers, wouldn't be doing this. And so they have no problem um, with blacks or Latinos or other groups. Um, but the fact that these people aren't voting for them uh, means that they're, you know, they're now embracing efforts to make it harder for those constituencies to vote. But I also think it would naive to say that there's no racial element um, to this. We've heard outrageous statements, from, for example, from the chair of the Republican Party in Columbus, Ohio, saying that he doesn't feel like we should uh, distort the electoral system to benefit the urban uh, read African-American voter turnout machine. So, I mean, there's explicit uses of race here, and whether they're driven by partisanship or whether um, they're driven by race, the fact is that they're invoking race, and so I think we need to talk about that. I also think that on a deeper level, we've had a generation of conservative justices on the court, people like John Roberts and Sam Alito, who came of age during the Reagan era at a time when there was a major backlash against the civil rights laws of the 1960s, not just the VRA, but the Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act and other related pieces of legislation. And I think race was a part of that. I think they were trying to lessen the use of race uh, in public policy, whether they did it for ideological reasons or racial reasons, I, I can never quite know. But I do think that race has always been present in the worldview of someone like John Roberts. I don't think he's principally driven by partisanship. I think he's driven by a deeper ideology that's hostile to the advances of the 1960s. And I think he's consistently downplayed the prevalence of discrimination in society and all aspects of society. I think that's been the signature cause of people like Roberts and Alito. You've argued this as well. Uh, and, and so uh, to me, saying that it's partisanship or it's racism or whatever, I'm more interested in, in the effect of what these laws are doing and not the motives themselves. Although I do recognize that the motives are important now as lawsuits are filed trying to prove intentional discrimination. Right. And that, and that finding of intentional discrimination is relevant, for example, to the question of whether Texas and North Carolina might be covered again by a preclearance regime, which a court would have the discretion to put in place under Section 3 of the Voting Rights Act, but only if there is a finding of, of intentional racial discrimination. Yeah. And can I just add something? Because, sure. I mean, it, I think it's sad that we're back to a situation where you have to prove intentional discrimination, because there were big fights over this during the VRA's history, particularly in the 1982 reauthorization of the VRA as it pertained to Section 2. And the Congress specifically said in response to earlier court decisions that you didn't have to prove intentional discrimination, that it was too much of a burden. So the fact that we're now back trying to prove intentional discrimination, I think, is something uh, that the VRA was meant to once again eradicate. Yeah, I want, I want to turn to that. I want to talk about the role of John Roberts in the 1982 reauthorization. You're not the first one to tell the story, but you are uh, someone who tells the story as a journalist very well. It makes for, a, I think, a, a pretty riveting reading uh, for those of us uh, who care about these kinds of issues. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the role that Roberts played? And, and I guess one thing I struggle with is the difference between kind of a racial animus and a um, 
belief in the ideology of colorblindness. And maybe that's what separates the two of us. As, as I see Roberts, you know, I don't see him in the same way as I see William Rehnquist, for example, uh, uh, in, in his own um, activities in making it harder for Latinos to vote in Arizona. I see Roberts as someone who really believes in a kind of a colorblind constitution, even if that leads to uh, effects that come out to be uh, hurting African-American and other Latino voters. So you talk a little bit about Roberts, your view of him, and what you see uh, from that 1982 period. Yeah, so uh, Roberts was a first he clerked for Rehnquist, who you mentioned earlier, who was the leading critic of, of the VRA and the civil rights laws at that time on the court in the early 1980s. And then he worked as a key foot soldier in the Reagan Justice Department. And there was a big effort to reauthorize the VRA in Congress in 1982. The Supreme Court had just ruled in Mobile versus Bolden that you had to show intentional discrimination uh, to knock down a discriminatory election system. Roberts worked very hard to preserve that finding of intentional discrimination. He was kind of tapped uh, as the key aide working on this effort under the attorney general and also the assistant attorney general for civil rights, both of whom were very influential. And Roberts wrote, you know, dozens and dozens of memos in very biting language, arguing that broadening section two of the VRA to encompass the effects of discrimination, not just intentional discrimination, would lead to things like quotas uh, in uh, the electoral sphere. And this was at a time when there was severe underrepresentation of African American voters in the South. I say in the book that African Americans were 25% of Southern voters, but they represented only 5% of elected seats. So the fact that Roberts was making this quota argument at the same time uh, that there was this underrepresentation angered a lot of career lawyers in the Justice Department and the Civil Rights Division and made the civil rights community very angry. And he ultimately lost that fight when Congress did amend the Voting Rights Act to show that you didn't have to just prove intentional discrimination. As to what's motivating Roberts, I guess we'll never totally know. I think that the colorblind argument was a rebranding of opposition uh, to the VRA. And so I do think that race was an element um, in it. I don't think it was just a good faith argument. I think that there was a racial component uh, to the argument. I think Roberts has always been very hostile to efforts to, for, to towards efforts to redress uh, historic forms of discrimination. And uh, I don't know what's being driven by that. Um, but I do think that that race is a part of what's motivating him. I'm, I'm not suggesting that he's a racist or anything like that. But I think that the colorblind ideology consistently downplays uh, the prevalence of racism in our society, including the prevalence of voting discrimination. Well, it's pretty obvious if you do go back and read the Roberts papers that he was a true believer and not simply yeah. a lawyer doing work for the Reagan administration. And so uh, back in 2005, when he was up for his appointment, I, you know, I, I predicted that uh, he would be a vote to cut the preclearance regime. And, and it, it kind of went exactly as we'd expected, although perhaps a little more slowly than it might have, given that the uh, Supreme Court gave Congress a chance to fix the act or come up with a fix. And then uh, that when that didn't happen in, after the Namudno case, we ended up with the Shelby County decision. And so I want to talk about the fallout of the Shelby County decision. We've talked a little bit about uh, the this, this struggle in, in Texas and, and, and how long it's taken. How do you think both uh, generally things are going uh, in terms of the uh, struggle for voting rights in the South post-Shelby County thinking of Texas and North Carolina as test, test cases. Uh, and how do you think it's going in other parts of the country? Some people point out, look, Wisconsin has a, 
uh, just about as strict a law as, as Texas. We could argue about the details, but pretty strict. And, and yet, that has nothing to do with Shelby County. So I'm wondering, did Shelby County change things out of the South, and, and how has it changed things in the South? Well, I think it, it, the, it, it's been a very bad situation following that ruling. You've had in Texas a law that was blocked in court under the VRA go into effect, and it's been a very lengthy process to challenge it, and people have been turned away from the polls. There's been dozens of stories documented by groups like the Brennan Center for Justice showing people who have been turned away in Texas. In North Carolina, as you mentioned, uh, they passed the most restrictive voting law uh, since the passage of the VRA in 1965. And it, it was so restrictive, um, you know, because North Carolina had such good election laws that were then repealed. So the fact that, you know, or curtailed, the fact that early voting was cut, that same-day registration was eliminated, that pre-registration for 16- and 17-year-olds was eliminated, that voter ID was required. They put all of this stuff into one bill so soon after the Shelby decision. And to me, that seemed a very strong rejoinder to John Roberts's contention that voting discrimination was largely a thing of the past. Obviously, Roberts said voting discrimination still exists, but he definitely downplayed the prevalence of it in his decision. And then I think there's been a spillover effect into other states like Wisconsin. What we saw in the 2012 election when there were still strong protections of the VRA in place is that many of these laws were blocked in court. Um, not all of them, but many of them were blocked in court. And what we've seen since Shelby is that it's harder to block these laws. It's harder to block them under the VRA. The, ju the judiciary in general is more hostile. And, and, and it, you have to kind of... Uh, it's, it's obviously a case-by-case -case basis, depending on what kind of court you draw. But, but the way that voting rights lawyers have described it to me is that, uh, you know, what happens in one part of the country in voting rights affects another part of the country. When the courts are less likely to block these laws in one place, it makes them less likely to block them um, in the other place. And, and the, the last thing I'll say is that there's really no recourse to the Supreme Court. I mean, in years past, and I tell the story throughout the book, when lower courts made a bad decision on voting rights, the Supreme Court was usually up there to stand for voting rights. They, they, they usually took an expansive view of the VRA. And now voting rights advocates are deathly afraid of any case coming before the Supreme Court, whether it's North Carolina, Texas, Wisconsin, something else. I mean, in fact, it was so bad that voting rights advocates were happy that the Wisconsin voter ID law, which was upheld by the appeals court, didn't go before the Supreme Court. They'd rather have one bad law in effect than a precedent that could gut voting rights throughout the board. So I mean, I think the judiciary is hostile across the board. And I think the fact that the Supreme Court, which has historically upheld voting rights, is now viewed as the chief obstacle to protecting voting rights, I think has just set a chilling precedent all, all across the country. Well, I want to turn then finally to this question about political struggle. Uh, because, as you say, the courts are no longer providing that sort of backstop uh, or yeah. even expansion of voting rights that, that, that the courts had in the past. You think about a decision like uh, Thornburg versus Jingles, which really took the mushy language of Section 2 and created so many majority-minority districts. I don't think we're going to see a kind of expansive readings like that anymore. And so I want to turn to the question of political struggle. One of the, the things you've written about uh, in The Nation and that makes its appearance uh, in this book is the North Carolina Moral Mondays uh, movement, which is a kind of a political backlash, not only to the voting changes, but to other laws that have been passed by the um, uh, North Carolina legislature, which recently shifted from being democratically dominated to Republican dominated. And I'm wondering first, uh, we'll get to the national question uh, in a second, but I'm wondering first on the state and local level, how do you see these battles being fought out? Is there a kind of a backlash effect of some of these laws? Will, will it affect 
um, both turnout uh, in elections and also will it um, lead eventually to some of these laws being overturned, not judicially, but by the legislatures themselves? I do think that we're seeing a backlash in certain places, that there have been organizing efforts in states like North Carolina against these laws. I also think in the 2015 legislative session, some states held their fire. For example, Nevada. Um, I was pretty sure Nevada went from Democratic to full Republican control for the first time since 1929. And I thought Nevada would do what North Carolina did, which is pass a very strict voter ID law and maybe some other things. Uh, and they didn't. And they didn't do it for a number of reasons. Apparently, the state's Republican governor wasn't so crazy about voter ID. He was focused on other things. Maybe they were worried about it motivating Democratic voters. Maybe they were worried about getting sued. I don't know exactly what motivated them not to do it. Maybe they will do it when they come back in 2016, closer to the election. But the fact is, a number of states did hold their fire in 2015. I think after viewing the struggles, the litigation struggles, and some of the political struggles in places like North Carolina and Texas, and you also saw very conservative legislation like Nebraska, not pass voter ID laws, um, saying that it's just, you know, having essentially conservative members uh, in Nebraska say that it just wasn't worth it, that it wasn't needed. Uh, and, and so I do think that there is an emerging political cost to making it harder to vote. It's not enough of a cost uh, that there, there needs to be more, more political backlash to, to people who do this. Because I ultimately, and I think we probably agree on this, I ultimately think these efforts are going to be defeated in, in, in the political sphere and not in the judicial sphere, as long as we have you know a judiciary like the one we have now that's largely hostile to voting rights. I mean, I think basically at some point in time, the people who are passing these measures are going to have to realize that it's not in their self-interest to do so. Because right now they are being driven by self-interest. They're thinking it's helping their party politically. And, and they have to see that it's not helping their party politically, that there's a cost to doing so, uh, or else they're not going to drop these efforts going forward. Well, finally, I want to talk about what's happening in the Congress, uh, on the national scene, in terms of the Voting Rights Act. <laughs> not a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, well, as late as 2006, the Senate passed the VRE renewal by a vote of 98 to 0, and there was also a lopsided but not um, a unanimous vote in the House. But there was tension just below the surface as Republicans yeah. on the Senate Judiciary Committee issued a report making the argument, uh, which the Supreme Court later accepted in Shelby County, that the preclearance provision was an unconstitutional power grab by Congress. Yeah. Um, what do you see as the prospect for some form of amendment of the VRA, either to restore preclearance or to give other voting protections, whether explicitly race-oriented or, as I argue in that recent slate piece, for one aimed at protecting all voters. Uh, is, is there any movement that we can expect? Obviously, nothing's going to happen before the 2016 election, uh, but uh, going forward in the future. Well, there's no movement legislatively under this Republican Congress. And I think there, there was a thought that the, the earlier uh, bill that was introduced that was co-sponsored by Jim Sensenbrenner uh, would move through the Congress. It didn't move, so Democrats significantly strengthened that piece of legislation, uh, which became the Voting Rights Advancement Act of 2015, essentially to lay the groundwork for future Congresses, that if Democrats uh, retake the Congress, this new bill can be the start of negotiations. And I do think that restoring the VRA would be a priority for a Democrat. Democratic Congress if we ever once again uh, see that day. I, I also, with regards to the 2006 reauthorization, I agree with you that there was tensions below the surface, major tensions within the Republican Party um, about the VRA. And, and you even had the Bush administration endorse the law's renewal, but they, they absolutely you know, 
hated that <laughs> piece of legislation. They were totally uninterested in enforcing it. So I think the Bush administration, Bush administration themselves didn't really like the VRA, but they thought there would be a political cost to not renewing it. But I do think that you still had, even in 2006, a strong bipartisan consensus in the Congress for the VRA. And I think you had a number of people in the Republican Party that, that not only were okay with the VRA, but they were proud of that they were part of the VRA's legacy. People like Jim Sensenbrenner, who argued that the Republican Party was also a major partner in passing the VRA. And in fact, all four reauthorizations of the VRA were signed by Republican presidents and passed with overwhelming support by the Republican Congress. So I'm basically arguing that Republicans are turning their back on their own piece of legislation. Um, when they run away from the VRA, that this was one of the best things that the Republican Party did historically, was signing on to the VRA, um, that this was a high water mark for their party over the last five decades. And I think the fact that they've turned their back on the VRA and voting rights more broadly is a really low point for the party. And so I think if they want to get back the moral high ground just more broadly, I think embracing the VRA would be a good place uh, to start. I think some in the party, like Michael Steele, for example, the former RNC chair, are arguing to Republicans that they do need uh, to start moving on this issue, that they can't just deny the existence of voting discrimination or the existence of racism more broadly in our society today, given everything that's going on. And so I'm not hopeful anything's going to happen soon, but I do think in a future Congress we could see movement legislatively. Well, great. I, I want to thank my first guest, Ari Berman, for appearing with me here today. If you haven't already, you should go out and buy his book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. It's got the depth of uh, the um, writing of a historian, but without the uh, turgid language of the <laughs> typical uh, history. It is, a, it is a riveting journalistic account. Definitely worth your time. Please send your feedback and comments on this program and on the new podcast formats to me, Rick Hassan, at the contact information at the Election Law Blog, electionlawblog.org. The ELB podcast is generally supported by the UC Irvine School of Law, but I'm solely responsible for its content, copyright 2015 by Rick Hassan. Technical support for the podcast from Jared Hassan-Klein. The ELB blog theme music is the composition Jazz by BeatFN, used under Creative Commons license. This is Rick Hassan. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. Thank you.